Now, we are plowing through the book of James. Um, I don't know about you, but um, James does not um, hold back on the punches. It really goes straight to it, and this is no different. Um, we, are, we are going through a verse that, uh, that talks about plenty of difficult things, uh, and when we come to the Word of God, we have to remind ourselves every week, but particularly when we're going through the book of James, that this is written by God for us. It is to challenge us, to encourage us, to build us, and to equip us. And so with that in mind, if you guys want to go to um, James chapter 5, five we're beginning in verse 1, and it goes like this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I did warn you, yeah? Uh, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Nice. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury. And in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts on, in, the, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned the, and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Father God, we thank you that you lead us. God, we ask, would you lead us today? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you unpack this scripture for us? God, I pray, would you, would you lovingly address us? We know you have things to lead us into. Uh, you have things you want to do in our life. God, we ask, would we have open ears and soft hearts this morning? The reality is, God, if this is just me talking, we have all better things to be doing. God, we want your Holy Spirit to actually do work in us. So, God, we welcome you this morning. Come walk amongst us. Amen. So, um, any of you who have been here for longer than 45 seconds will know we are excited about Jesus. Right? We love Jesus. He is on the cross conquered Satan, sin, and death. He has, um, he has uh, overcome what the Bible calls the curse. And in breaking this curse, he has restored our relationship with God. So we have this relationship again with God. We are facing um, and getting to spend eternity with God. We have this wonderful relationship now with God. And it's really, really exciting. But it doesn't end there. God also, whilst we're on this earth, wants to partner with us. If you cast your minds back to the garden, um, Adam and Eve uh, were in the garden. And what God um, called them to be was stewards. They were to look after the garden. But it wasn't just a garden. It wasn't just like God had given them a role as gardeners. He, he had actually given them um, stewardship of the whole of creation. And he said, I have given you um, so much. I've given you this garden. I've given you all of creation. I've given you each other. I've given you a purpose in this world. It's not just the eternal holiday. You have this purpose. You are stewards. 
And one of the first things that the curse broke was this idea of being stewards of God's gifts. And immediately, what do we see Adam and Eve doing with the things that he'd given them? We see them sinning. We see them taking the decisions that God had given them and sinning with them. We see them the relationships um, that God had given them, and we see them sinning against one another. That the curse has broken every aspect of this stewardship, which is looking after what God has given them. And so part of what happens when we see Jesus come on the scene, that he dies on the cross for our sin, that he raises with new life, that he has restored this idea of stewardship. And so this is why James is talking about, and the Bible throughout talks about, what we do on this earth matters. What we do with the people around us matters. What we do with our time, what we do, gosh, with our money, right? All of this matters. All of it is significant. All of it is an opportunity to reflect what God originally made mankind for, which is to be good stewards. Bless you, Fran. You're very welcome. And so we're going to be uh, plowing through that. Um, and and uh, we, we also see that the Bible says in Romans, um, it says, so, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are stewards now, and one day each of us will stand before God. We'll stand before God, and Romans says we will give an account. We will give an account for what we did. Now, this won't be judgment in the sense of you are having to bear the weight of your sin. Jesus has taken that. But as Christians, we stand before God, and we will give an account for what we did with the time, with the relationships, with the money, with everything we have in this world of what we've done with it. And there's this picture in the Bible of our hope, our longing, is that we will see God, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have, you have done much in this world with the little I've given you. And that's our cry's heart as Christians. John Piper says this, You were created personally by God for a reason, and you will give an account of how you fulfilled his purpose for you on earth, namely to trust him and love him and obey him and display his excellence in the world. You will give an individual account to God. Now, this... This should be serious, but not heavy in terms of your sin is unpaid for heavy, right? This is serious and it's important because God has given us a lot of things to do a lot of good with, okay? Some of you are parents of, like, preteen kids, and you know that if you give your kids a significant amount of money for a kid, say, I don't know, 10 pounds, and they come back and it's gone, you don't just think, oh, there's grace. We're, we're a grace family, you know, we, we, we don't quibble about these things. It's fine, there's grace. No, 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 you say, hey, you come here and you give an account. What did you do with that 10 pounds? I gave you 10 pounds for a purpose. What did you do with it? Now, that's not in a condemning way. That's in a sense of, this is a significant amount of money. You have the opportunity to do good with it or to waste it. And God will hold us to an account because we have lots of things to do good with. Uh, and James uh, today is looking at um, good stewards and bad stewards. And it's sometimes helpful not just to paint the picture of what a good steward is, but also what a bad steward is. And James does not hold back here, right? He spends plenty of time saying, this is what it looks like to be a bad steward. And it's really helpful for us, not because we can say, oh, thank goodness I'm not like that, but because it helps reveal our heart. We can see in every picture of someone who does evil or misuses the grace of God, there is an opportunity for us to say, Lord God, where, where am I missing your grace? Where is there an opportunity to be a better steward of the grace that you have given me? And so that's why we're going through it. So um, before we dive straight into it, um, there's a, we need to talk about money. 
And money is spoken about lots in the Bible, so we should too. Uh, and before we go into the, this specific context of the way that James talks about money, there are four different types of people uh, that God talks about concerning money in the Bible. And um, God isn't necessarily interested in whether we're rich or not. It's our relationship with wealth. What do we do with that? What is our relationship with the money in our bank? What is the relationship that we have with all the stuff we filled our houses with? Yeah? God is far more interested in your relationship with money than he is with whether you're rich or poor. That being said, the Bible has four types of people. First of all, um, the good poor. This is people who are poor, but not for, their, not for any reason of their own. So if you look at the Old Testament, people like Ruth or Naomi, um, both of them were poor, were destitute. Um, we look at, man, for, through most of the prophets, majority of the New Testament, the disciples were all poor. Jesus was poor. He had like one piece of clothing that he wore all the time. We'd call that, that's a poor person, right? He doesn't, he's homeless. He doesn't have anywhere to sleep at night, right? We'd call that a poor person. And, and yet they, they did good amongst being poor. It's worth mentioning that because we see in Proverbs, a lot of the time, um, the Bible paints this picture of of people who are poor because they've made bad decisions, right? Because they've been frivolous. They've taken out loans they shouldn't have done. They've gone and bought Audis that they should not have been buying, right? Uh, and so the Bible has those two different ways of painting the picture of good poor and bad poor. Uh, and then the other two are good rich. Okay, so we look at the story of uh, Ruth and Naomi. Uh, we have, they are looked after by a guy called Boaz, right? Who's a wealthy guy, but what does he do with his wealth? Loads of good. Loads of good. He is looking out for the people he can bless, for the people he can care for. And um, God, if you like, the book of Ruth actually uses him as a shadow, as a picture of the coming Christ. This is a guy who's wealthy but has done great things with his wealth. Another example, there's plenty, but I'll just choose one more. A guy called Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. And th this is a guy who was on a, the council that condemned Jesus but didn't agree with them. And when Jesus was crucified, he said, he can have my tomb. He was a wealthy guy. He owned a tomb, which is quite a big deal in those days. And he gave Jesus his tomb. Now, in reflection, I, would, I only kind of realized this when I, was, when I was going through it. But I realized maybe that wasn't the best use of a tomb in that Jesus only used it for three days. And so he gave this gift and then he only used it for three days. But I'm, it, all in the sovereignty of God, I guess it all worked out. It's now actually all covered in gold. You can go visit it. It doesn't look like the original tomb at all. But, um, but yeah, so that's a guy who was wealthy, but you stewarded his wealth for good reasons. The final one is uh, bad rich. People who are rich, but uses it for bad purposes. We see Matthew, the tax collector, right, before he becomes a disciple, he's using his power to extort money out of people. Right? He's wealthy because he's pushed other people down. And then we see like, constant parables that Jesus talks about of rich fools, people who are wealthy but don't steward it in a good way at all. And so uh, when, as we look at that, um, as we look through, I guess, this first bit of James, um, he is particularly addressing um, rich who use it for terrible reasons. He's particularly, in this case, addressing uh, non-Christians, um, people who don't love Jesus. Um, and this is primarily a call to repentance, but there's also an opportunity for us to see, well, how does God see stewardship? What does he want us to be doing with our money? Um, so let's uh, begin uh, in verse 1. It goes like this. Come now, you rich. 
Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And now, he, what he's talking about is people who have treated their stuff, their clothes, their possessions, their money as their treasure. It's the thing they've spent their entire life working towards, and their hope is within it. The Bible says unashamedly, this is a terrible way to live. This is a terrible way to live. God created us with intention and purpose for our hope to be on him. And when we replace it with money, what we're saying is, yeah, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust your purposes. I don't trust your provision. I'm going to put all of my hope in money, in stuff. When the Bible makes very clear, we entered this world naked. We will leave this world naked. You cannot take it with you. All of the stuff you build up, all of the, um, the things in this world, you cannot take it with you. They will not last. And that's why he's talking about it um, being stuff that will corrode, that will not last. Um, as moth-eaten, um, as, as your riches have rotted. Do we treat our stuff like that? Do we have the long term in mind when we look at all of our stuff, all of the effort we're pumping in, all of the extra hours we're pumping into work? Do we look at it as, this isn't going to last. For all eternity, everything I'm earning right now is, is actually meaningless in the long run. In the long run, I don't get to take it with me. And so what James is saying is, you guys are idiots. You're investing in something which will not last. And yet the world around us is so utterly confident that their riches will save them. It's going to be okay because I've got tons of money in the bank account. It's going to be all right because I have Gucci everywhere, right? And maybe we don't say that. We're not, you know, crazy and Californian enough to go all out there and proclaim to the world that I've got everything sorted because I'm loaded. But what do we think inside? When we see those big investment posters or those advertisements that essentially say, you will be so happy when you have this or earn this much, what happens in our heart? Do we believe the lie? Because it's not going to last. We believe in eternity and that there is a hope beyond the grave and our riches will not, not last into that eternity. We were not made to love these riches. Instead, we were made to love God. There is um, uh, a line by an artist called Tripoli who says, the dollar bill says in God we trust. It's funny because money is the only God we trust. And it's true. The dollar bill, if you've ever looked at it, says in God we trust, which is ironic because for many people who use that, for many people who have and use money, it's the money that they trust in. And it's convicting. It's, in, it's convicting because if we truly trust God, we'll trust him for tomorrow. We won't put, put all our hope and our confidence in money. So let's say we're a Christian. We're aware of this wrestle going on. We have a house. We have a job. We, we have responsibilities. We have maybe kids we're providing for. There's a, very real, um, there's a very real thing to be worried about, right? What does it look like for us to trust in God and not money? One of the things the Bible says over and over again is if you want to kill this control that money has on your life, then give it away. Give it away. So I says the, the, the rich young man, he says, I have done everything you've commanded to. What else must I do? And Jesus says, give, everything away. give away everything you have. Why? Is it because having money is a bad thing? No. It's because that money had a grip on his soul and he went away sad. Why? Because he loved money. 
He loved money. And God has called us to be a recklessly generous people. And so if we're going to be good stewards, we need to see God's, the money that God loans us for this time on earth as a gift, not God itself. And hey, we have a wonderful opportunity. Next week, we have a gift day. And there are tons of good things that this will do. There are churches that can be planted with this money. There is venues that can be started. The gospel can go forward through the money that we're giving in faith. Like This exists here in Eltham because people gave generously. Right? We are experiencing the blessing of what God has done with other people's money. But that, all of that aside for a moment, all of, that, all of the good that God's going to do with it for the side for the moment, purely for our hearts alone, next week we need to give. Next week we need to say, Lord God, in my heart I am trusting in money. Lord, help me. And find opportunities to give. You know? There are, there are other things as well. There's this gift day coming up. There's tons of things in this world that God has called us to give to, whether it's um, cooking for a whole bunch of people and blessing them with food. You know, it's the little things like that or big things like one big offering. There are so many opportunities that God has given us to kill this control that money has on our lives. It is a warfare. This is not a passive thing. Oh, we'll see how the budget looks this week. We are making war on money's uh, hold on our lives. It is a really good thing because in return, what we get is utter trust in Jesus. We trust him. We trust that he gives. Obviously, we need to be wise when we're giving. Um, but at the end of the day, God says, I will, I will provide. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And that's why we come prayerfully and say, God, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to give? I want to trust you. I want my heart to belong to you completely. Help me, Lord. Uh, number two, bad stewards see, see people as objects or resources, not image bearers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, throughout the Bible, we see God inferring value on people, not because of their beauty, not because of their intelligence, not because of their charm, not because of their accomplishments, but because they bear the image of God. Go back to the garden again. I, I love the garden. It's amazing. There's so many pictures there. But what we see is God creates people in his image. They are in that moment. They've done nothing. They've achieved nothing. But they are immensely valuable. They have dignity, value, and worth. And we have this funny thing in our present culture where I think particularly with women, um, there is a phrase where to infer value on people, you say, you're beautiful, you are beautiful. But the difficulty with beauty is that it changes. The difficulty with beauty is it depends upon the person who's, who's making the judgment. And beauty is a, is a fickle thing. Beauty is a fickle thing. But I would say they're not, people are not valuable because they're beautiful. People are valuable because they're made in the image and likeness of God. They resemble him. They're, your emotions and your desires and the way you are made intricately reflects God. There is something valuable in you. And it's something that our world needs to know over and over again. Our world is full of people who do not appreciate the value that they hold just by being an image bearer of God. Before they've done anything, before they've got themselves all beautiful, before they've achieved anything, you are utterly valuable. And as stewards 
our role is to treat people as image bearers, whether they're Christians or not Christians. They are valuable because of it. It's the same thing we see with William Wilberforce a few hundred years ago, when he, against um, popular um, opinion, opposed the slave trade. What he was saying is these people, these people, although you have all of these reasons why they're less, um, why they're inferior to certain races, they are valuable because they're made in the image and likeness of God. They are valuable and important. He spent his entire life fighting for them. Why? Because he knew he'd been given a gift by God, the opportunity to use his small amount of influence to make a big amount of good. Okay, William Wilberforce is a great example of a steward who heeded the warning of this. That although in this time, and we look uh, at the, the ancient time that James was talking about, these rich people probably had quite a lot of power. It says just at the end uh, that you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Right? That's probably what's happened. Is he took them to court and condemned them to be killed. Now, we don't know what they did, but whatever it was, James says, this is unrighteous. You have taken your power, your influence, your wealth, and you've used it to crush someone because you can. This is horribly evil. This is horribly evil. And I uh, sincerely doubt that anyone here has executed someone, right? But what does happen is, in our hearts, we treat people differently. It's probably not just me, but we have preferences with the way we treat different people. And I have to remind myself of this over and over again, that everyone in this world that I meet, whether they have done good things or bad things, whether they are beautiful or not, whether they are charming or not, whether they are intelligent or not, they are, they are, value, they are valuable to God. They have bare God's image and they are important because of it. Uh, a few years ago in Libya, uh, there was a uh, particular building that was ransacked and the people in it were killed. And this wasn't particularly surprising because there were, there were, at the time in Libya, a few years ago, there was lots of violence going on. There were lots of people dying, there were lots of people, places being set on fire. It was a tough time to be in Libya. But what was significant about this particular building is it was the US Embassy. And when these people came in with weapons, set the place on fire, killed um, the diplomat, the US diplomat to Libya, it was a really big deal. Was it just because uh, it's, it's violence and, oh my gosh, violence is unusual? No, 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 there was loads of violence going on. It was significant because this was a representative. This was, if you like, an image bearing of the most powerful nation in the world. And so, if you like, there's a little bit of a picture of whenever we sin against someone, whenever we treat someone as inferior, we're not just sinning against them, we're sinning against God. That's why David says in the Psalms, God, against you alone have I sinned. And, and you can look, take that and be like, well, actually, David sinned against loads of other people, right? Saying it's Bathsheba, her husband, which he killed. Like, there's tons of other people that David has sinned against. And yet what he's saying is, God, all of these people bear your image. When I sin against them, I sin against you. And God cares. What's wonderful about this is that there are people um, in this country and in others who uh, the Lord does not hear their cries. All of the charities that have ever been set up will not be able to catch all of the people who fall through the cracks, the people who are um, being taken advantage of. But God hears. This is wonderful news. This means that for every person there is hope, that justice will be brought. And he talks a lot about justice in this text. And it's tough because you've, you've got things like your flesh being burned like fire. And it's difficult in our culture to understand and appreciate why that's even in the Bible. And yet when we see real injustice, and every now and again we'll hear of it, we long for justice to be, to be brought. 
There are people who have died before they were ever able to be brought to justice in this world. There are people in this country who we see in the papers, right? Who they never had to face a, a trial. They never faced a jury. They never did any time in prison. If you like, they got away from it. The Bible says otherwise. They didn't get away with it. They will face God. And, and this is, is particularly difficult in Western societies who grapple with the idea that God condemns people. But if you go to the areas of the world where this abuse is just rampant, they absolutely hope in this. I will never see justice in this world. The system is too corrupt or there's just too many people doing injustice. But I hope in a day when God will bring justice. When, when God will bring uh, the punishment that people deserve. That people will not get away from this. God hears. God loves. God cares. There is a, a principle called a zero-sum gain. Where, which essentially means your loss is my gain. It's what we see here, and it's what we see in much of this world, that particularly the rich and the powerful sometimes have the opportunity to create loss for other people so that they can gain. God says whenever you gain out of someone else's loss, ultimately, it's a loss. Ultimately, it's a loss because you will face me. You will face me. That we uh, will not get away with in this world taking advantage of the vulnerable, of the poor, of the needy. Instead, what God calls us to do is to use our riches, is to use our powers, to use our influence to be a blessing. So, number three, bad stewards use God's grace to serve themselves. It's short-sighted to see um, God's patience for us as an excuse. I think sometimes we can uh, see, well, um, no one stopped me, so I'm just going to continue doing it. How, t- how many times have we heard that before? I don't really have to do the right thing um, because well, no one stopped me. No one notices. Uh, God says, I do notice. I do notice. It matters what you do. It matters what we do uh, with the opportunities we have. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by this because I know the, the, the hidden things are so important because my heart wants to say, no one sees this so I can get away with taking advantage of this person in some little meaningful way. Uh, or, or, or I can get away with gaining here when someone actually loses out. Uh, when, when God says, no, I see. I see and I care. And I care. On the flip side, when we do do things that aren't seen, and I know many people in this room will fill much of their life with serving someone and it will never be recognised. It may never be brought to light. People may not stand at the front of a room like this and clap you, but God sees. When you are a good steward, when you are doing what God has called you to do with your money, your time, your resources, your friendships, God sees. He loves. He cares. And one day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, So now we flip across the other side. We begin in verse 7 and we look at good stewards. We see in verse 7, be patient therefore brothers. James is addressing Christians now. So he's talking about people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see this therefore. And the little poem I was reminded by, whenever you see therefore, we should, whenever we see therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what it's there for. So why is he saying be patient therefore brothers? He is assuming that Christians are aware of injustice, are aware of brokenness, are are aware of the brokenness of this world and are cut by it. And so he says, be patient, therefore. And what does he say after that? Until the coming of the Lord. He says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Good stewards 
take all of the things they have in this world and they look to Jesus. They say, God, at the moment, I don't see you face to face, but I know one day I will. And we live with the long game in mind. And sometimes the things that God has called us to do can look so difficult and frustrating and, God, where is the fruit in this? But God says, look to me. Trust me. One day you will be with me and you will receive the reward. It continues. It says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Farming is funny. I've never really done farming. I can barely say I've done gardening, let alone farming. But from what I understand about ancient farming is essentially um, you sow everything, you do everything you can, you work your butt off, and then you just wait because you are utterly dependent upon weather. And in this day and age, farmers have a little more control. But the reality is you were completely dependent upon something you couldn't change. If the weather didn't come, you either had to sell everything and move to another country and completely change your life or die. They're basically your two options. And and farmers are a great picture here because at the end of the day, we do not have control over our life. We have control over little things. So if you take my job, I work as a developer. If I don't like my job, I, I can more or less get a different job. If I don't like the way my job is, I have some control over how I can change it, how I can shuffle things around. I can change, I make apps for a living, I can change the type of app I make, the way I make make it, the way I build it. I have so much control. And James says, live less like a developer and more like a farmer. Because we are not in control of the overall outcome of our life. We are in control of maybe what we do as Christians, but not where fruit comes. And there's sometimes where, as Christians, we are working so hard to see fruit in our life, and it's just not coming. And for some reason, whether it's investing in people or investing in this venue, Eltham, uh, there are so many opportunities in our life where, as Christians, we are trying hard and saying, God, please bear fruit. And God says, be patient. Be like a farmer. Trust in me. Trust that in my timing, I will bear fruit. And I really feel like this is... This should be a weight off our shoulders. Some of you are, um, and I I include myself, some of us really feel the weight of bearing fruit. And God says, I've called you to faithfulness, not to fruitfulness. And there are things in your life that aren't complete yet. There are things in your life that you want to change and be different, and you want God's sanctification to hurry up. And God says, be patient. I've got it. I am doing a work in you, and trust me, Trust me with this. He continues, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Live with the end in mind. So if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus, this is bad news. You will face Jesus and have to pay yourself for your sin. It's terrible. Yet God has given away in Jesus to trust in him. For those who love Jesus, your sin has been forgiven. You will face Jesus. You will face Jesus and you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. All of those times when you were working and no one saw it, I saw it. Some of you have done the marathon and we are to live with this end in mind. It's kind of like that moment when you come around the corner and you're on the mall and you can see the big gates with the time on it. You can see the end. Your emotions at that moment, for any of you who have run the marathon, your emotions at that moment are completely different from your emotions halfway round. When you're like, oh my goodness, I have another few hours to go. But Jesus says, live with the end in sight. 
Live with the end in sight. What he's saying is take your eyes off the stuff around you, off what the world tells you, off what the enemy tells you, and keep your eyes on me. That's how we be good stewards. Number two, good stewards don't complain about each other. This is tough. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against other Christians. What, like ever? Because I, I don't know about you, but there's quite a lot of irritating Christians. Yeah? I include myself in that. Yeah? I, but God says, don't grumble. Really? Like, even when they're not listening. Do not grumble. When we grumble, what we say is, God, the people you have put me with are not good enough. Uh, I appreciate their... You are still sanctifying them, but God, this is not good enough. I want better people to be around. And God says, no, 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 this is my gift to you. Imperfect people. Because what I value more than your comforts, more than your happy, happiness, more than your convenience, is your holiness. And I need to be reminded of this all the time because I get irritated really easily. And people get irritated with me as well, unsurprisingly. And I was thinking about this as I was writing this. That means that... My weaknesses are a blessing to someone. How crazy is that? It means the times when I'm irritating and frustrating, and my wife will testify that that happens quite often, is a blessing to someone. Why? Because completely harmonious relationships are not the plan that God has. He wants to do work in our hearts. He wants to put us around people who are different to us, who talk differently to us, who talk about completely different things, because he wants to do a work in our heart. This is why community is wonderful. This is why um, we as Christians try our hardest not to silo off into just hanging out with people who are like us because we miss so much opportunity for God working in our hearts. Uh, I was hanging out with Derek earlier this week. He's not here, so I can talk about him. Uh, I was hanging out with Derek this week, and we were, we, we were basically agreeing, and we agreed in this moment, that if we were not in the same church together, we just would not hang out like, Derek is significantly older than me and in a completely different life stage and has a completely different personality to me. And yet Derek is God's gift to me, like so many other people, because he's completely different to me. And God works in my heart the more time I spend with Derek. I'd recommend it. He's a nice guy. You should hang out with him. But more than that, hang out with loads of people who are different to you. Why? Because God wants to do a work in your heart. As he knits us together, together as a body, he is doing a work in our heart. And so I know it's, it's difficult because it's always more effort, but more fruit often equals more effort. It is worth it. And that's why God calls us to not grumble. Bob Goff says this, I've spent my whole life avoiding the experiences Jesus said he would use to help me grow. We are so quick to pray and ask God, God, fix whatever it is in my life that's hurting me right now. God, take away this pain or this frustration or this irritation. And God doesn't. And we think, does God not love me? Does he not care for me? Is he not a father who is there for me? And time and time again, the Bible says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, is what Paul says. And the point of it is there are moments in our life when we cannot see why God has brought us through a really difficult, hard time. The reality is God has bigger fruit to bear in your life. He has things that he wants to do in you and through you. And, and suffering and trial and difficulties, God uses to bless us, to make us more like Jesus, to bring us closer to him. There have been times in my walk with God, particularly in the first year, when I went through some really tough times. And at the moment I was like, this is really hard. I don't know why you're doing this, God. 
And then about a year later, I was like, oh, I see now. And he did so much work in my heart in that first year of being a Christian. And so when we, look, when we, when we face trial, we have to ask ourselves, God, what are you doing in this moment? You, you, you're not an, an absentee father. You're not someone who has normally got his eyes on the job but sometimes forgets. Maybe he's like texting or something and he, and he misses that what's happening in your life. Oh my goodness, there's suffering, there's trial, there's hardship going on in your life. I completely missed it. No, 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 God is not that God. God knows exactly what's going on. He is predestined everything that happens in our life. That means he uses it to bless us for our good. Good stewards see blessing in trial. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who blessed those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, prophets had a pretty tough gig. They basically would take a whole people who didn't like God and spend their entire life proclaiming God, often being killed, right? That was essentially their life. It was really, really tough. We have this one situation which I love. It's a beautiful picture of, of, of God speaking through people and yet prophets having a really horrible life. Ezekiel lay on his side for 390 days. That's 390 days. That's like watching everything on Netflix and then a whole bunch more time. I'm stuck and on my side. There's literally nothing I can do. But God called him to do that to show how God felt about his people and their sin. He was using Ezekiel's like lying on his side to basically show, I love you. Turn from your sin. Turn back to me. And the Bible says that God uses our moments of trial as a blessing to bless us. And Ezekiel says, okay, that's weird. It's odd that you want me to lie on my side for 390 days. But if that's what you want to do to glorify your name, then so be it. Then I'm going to lie on my side for 390 days. Job, we see he lost everything he owned. And even worse than that, he lost his 10 kids, all of his children, in one fell swoop. But he trusted God. And we heard that bit of scripture uh, that was brought about Job, that he trusted God. He said, God, I trust you. I know you're using this trial for good. I don't see it right now. And we as the reader, we see, oh, there's this this big thing that Satan's saying to God. And God is is showing that in Job's trial, God has done something in his life that is more significant than all the trial that's going on. And that's why Job trusts in God. But Job doesn't know that. Job doesn't see this whole narrative that's going on. All he knows is God is good and I trust him. And our lives will look like that. One day we're going to be in heaven and we'll look back on everything and be like, oh, that's why that happened. Right now we're not going to see that. And we have to trust him through trial. Right? We look back on the prophets and we're like, well, of course it was a good thing that Ezekiel lay on his side for 390 days. But at the moment, Ezekiel was like, seriously? <laughs> like, they've ignored you for this amount of time. How is me lying on my side going to do any better? But what did he do? He trusted God. God, I trust you. That sounds like a crazy thing. Going and starting Eltham seems like a crazy thing. Giving money recklessly seems like a crazy thing. But I trust you. I love you and I know that you love me. And he says this in verse 11. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's why we trust him. That's why we follow him because we know he is compassionate and merciful. And Peter says this, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why we work. That's why we're good stewards. That's why we take the things that God has given us and use them in honorable ways, because we're looking forward 
to Jesus. We know that this trial that he has taken us through is good. And number four, finally, good stewards are honest. It says this, which seems a little bit weird at the end of this, but it does fit in. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What he's saying there is oaths basically say, sometimes I say yes, and sometimes I say yes by this oath. And what he's saying is sometimes you have yeses, which aren't actually yeses. You're just saying yes, I don't know, maybe to people please. You're not being truthful, you're not being honest. And God has said finally, to be good stewards... Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be honest. Sometimes, uh, this is what I feel is particularly appropriate in a British culture. Sometimes we say yes to things we have no intention of fulfilling, right? Because in that moment, we just want to be nice to them. We want to be enthusiastic on their behalf. But God says, don't lie. You can be honest. When we say no, sometimes what we're, what we're accepting is I am not God. I am not infinite. I cannot help you with this X or Y thing because I've run out of time. I'm not infinite. It's it's a humility in saying, I cannot do everything. And let your yes be yes and your no be no is the raw honesty that God calls us to live with. And if we are to be good stewards, we are to be an honest people. And it's okay. We don't have to summon resources out from nothing. Stewardship is different to doing everything. Stewardship is saying, I take what God has given me and humbly and, in, and faithfully uh, use it to glorify and honour him. That's what good stewardship is.